hello and welcome to the Spring and Equestrian podcast. This is season four of the podcast and I'm your host, Jessica Parr. I'm a professional rider and trainer in Ontario, Canada, and you can find and follow us at Spring and Act on Instagram or www.springandact.com is our website. This podcast is meant to help you build your skills and confidence as a rider and also your relationship with your horse. I hope that some of these episodes can help you navigate the industry and just bring you a little bit of advice and inspiration when it comes to all things equestrian. So I hope that you can sit back and relax and enjoy the show. Hi guys. So this is a episode that I recorded with Amy, Allie, Diana, Katie, and Shannon. All of their details are in the show notes. They're all young professionals in Ontario, different disciplines and backgrounds. And I have to say, it's been one of my favorite episodes thus far because everybody got to kind of talk about common issues and topics that you guys had submitted for this episode. And there was a lot of reoccurring themes. Um, We talked about what it's like being young professionals in the industry, some of the things that they felt are not brought up enough or talked enough about. And um, once we got through kind of introductions and the basic questions, then we got into the really honest and vulnerable conversation. Um, it is a very long episode. If you do not have the chance to listen to the whole thing, um, I would skip to about halfway because I felt like once we got more comfortable talking to each other and being more open, the discussion was really relevant and that you guys will find it very helpful if you are part of the equestrian industry, thinking of having a career in the equestrian industry, or just a junior or amateur rider, um, even a pleasure rider. There's just such great advice from all of the girls. I enjoyed this episode so much that I think we really need to get together and do another one. So that being said, I'm going to have you guys submit Um, questions and topics for another episode and I will get everybody together and we will absolutely do this again because it was very valuable and um, yeah I'll stop talking and I'll let you guys get right into it. So thank you guys so much for doing this by the way Mm -hmm. this is awesome I think people would really like to hear your opinions and everybody has a little bit of a different background so Getting started, I just want to have everyone introduce themselves, and I will start with Katie. Okay, uh, I'm Katie Scoop. I run Greystone Equestrian. Um, I grew up out on the other side of Toronto at a bunch of different eventing barns, and that's mainly what my background is in. Um, I was really lucky the area I grew up in. I mean, there was an Olympian on every doorstep. So that's what I got to train with growing up. And then I brought myself and my horse to Guelph to do my honors biomedical science um, degree with a business admin minor. And I started coaching in this area and my business has just kind of grown from there. Uh, We took over the lease of a farm just north of Guelph Uh, last May of 2020, right in the start of the pandemic. (laughs) And uh, so that's kind of my home base now for like training horses. Um, I don't do a bunch of sales, but um, we have a lot of lessons. And most of my students and myself compete quite a bit. Um, Again, my 
background is mostly eventing and then um, some dressage. And then I've definitely gotten more into the hunters and jumpers being in this area. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> no, that's, that's super. And then I will just jump to Shannon. So my name's Shannon Ryan, and I'm the owner of Simmons Sport Horses. Um, I started off riding around the age of six or seven. My parents put me in a Christmas camp, and that was kind of it. Um, I Nobody in my family does horses, so it's a little strange, and to them, uh, not totally understanding why I do it, but I do it because I love it. Um, so I started off doing training and this and that when I bought my first horse at 16, and then he ended up having to be retired. So we ended up, or I ended up end like doing training um, on other people's horses and catch rides where I really learned a lot based on what I was riding and different horses. Um, after high school, I started my training business with freelance um, and doing a lot of freelance training along with leasing my own facility. Um, and through the years, I'd leased different facilities, started my own show team, uh, offered lessons and training, a little bit of sales, uh, we made the move just this last year to buy our own farm, and we are now doing our lessons COVID-dependent up here. <laughs> um, so yeah, we're, we're keeping busy, and I absolutely love doing it. We've now taken on cattle and sheep and everything on top of that, so it's a whole new world. <laughs> but yeah, we, uh, I love what I do, so I'm very fortunate to do it and kind of work my way into it as well. So. Fantastic. All right, and I'll have Amy on. Great. So my name's Amy Noonan uh, of AN Equestrian. I grew up out in Nova Scotia and I was lucky enough to grow up on a boarding farm. So I got to ride from a very, very young age, but I started out as a dressage rider. Uh, that's what my mom did. So of course you want to be like your mom, <laughs> but I always did want to jump. So I, I did eventually get into that in my teen years. I got to play around a lot with the hunter jumpers eventing, just kind of dabbling. Um, I took a year off between high school and university and came to Ontario and groomed for an A circuit barn. So that kind of hooked me into the A circuit uh, lifestyle, but I still went to university. <laughs> um, at the end of university, I realized I did not want to go into finance, which is what I studied. Uh, and I started riding at breeding farms in Ontario. At that point, my family had moved to Ontario. So I spent five years breaking babies, riding a lot. And as I did that, I was able to slowly build up a clientele because nobody knew who I was. <laughs> and I was lucky enough to eventually secure an assistant trainer job at a, a local show barn here. And I got to do some really cool big classes on other people's horses, which was really, really amazing. Um, so now I'm back doing my own freelance thing. Uh, it's a little bit more low key. Um, I really just enjoy teaching, so I don't really care about getting to the horse show so much anymore. Um, and I've also been teaching, or coaching, I should say, the University of Guelph IHSA Hunt Seat team uh, for the past seven years. So that's been super fun, too. Um, probably my favorite things are going to those horse shows. So, yeah, that's me. Awesome. All right. And I'll jump to Dee Dee. Okay, so I started riding just like everybody else with like uh, at school barns and whatnot. I'm a hunter jumper rider. So then anyway, so then I went to tr some Trillium barns after that and then started showing on the A's when I was pretty young, like 11-ish. Showed on the A circuit for 
well, till now. So from when I was 11 till now, but when I was 18, 19, I, I rode with Sue Fish, who was just like a really old school trainer on the circuit. And I learned a lot from her. Her horsemanship is awesome. It's like one of the best, I would say. She really cares about the horses really, really well. And a lot of things that she taught me, um, I still remember to this day. And then I went to university, studied social work, um, mostly just as like a backup in case I were to ever get injured or something, couldn't do horses for whatever reason, just get an education. So did social work, um, graduated from Guelph Humber with that. Uh, moved to Europe for a couple of years and rode at a big sales barn there called Chakamala and they have tons of horses. So there's lots of riding there. Horse rode around, came back after a couple of years because I was offered a job in Burlington to run this. Well, now Hugh Graham's in it, but it was at the time they wanted to just run this stable as like a show stable. So I came back for that, worked there for a couple of years. So anyways, then I, then I, went to work for Carly Campbell Cooper as her assistant trainer Worked for her for a couple of years. Now she moved to Peterborough. So I'm still at the same facility in Burlington on Guelph line there, Guelph line dairy road, but now Ann Audie um, took it over. Now I work for her and also do freelancing as well on the side, which is awesome. Fantastic. And Allie. I'm a dressage trainer. Um, I grew up in Campbellville, Ontario, just outside of Milton. My mom had a boarding and lesson stable there. So I've been riding since I could walk. Um, I started showing dressage when I was six, but then I went the pony club route. Um, so I showed dressage, eventing, and um, the jumpers. And then from there, I had a Hanoverian that we bred ourselves. And he was a very difficult horse. I wanted to make him an eventer. He was very naughty. So then I said, okay, fine, you can be a show jumper. He was also very naughty. So I said, it's either dressage horse or dog food you can pick. And he did not want to be a dressage horse either, but that was our last job for him. So he eventually figured it out. And then I worked with David Marcus and Nicholas Fife, who were dressage trainers in the Campbellville area. And I was a working student for them for on and off, depending what they're in Florida or at home, but for five or six years. And we got my horse to kind of the FBI juniors level and then in after high school, when I was 18, I moved to California because I got a position as an assistant rider to Jan Ebling, and he was on the Olympic team for the States. And his farm, the Acres, was just outside of L.A. So that was a really neat experience to take my horse and move there where I was riding, you know, 10 FEI level horses every day. And then I got to travel with the U.S. team to Europe and groom for Jan while he was campaigning for Normandy. WEG that year, um, but unfortunately his horse had a, a sprained attendant, so that didn't work out when we came home. Then after that, I trained back with Nicholas and David, and I went to Young Riders on the Ontario team with that same horse, um, which was pretty cool because he went from being really naughty to being the first step in my career. And then I went to university at Laurier for psychology, just as something to do. The only thing I didn't want to do growing up was train horses, but here I am. So we did that and then I started um, teaching a bit freelance um, for a year and a half and then I got uh, a position at Winterwood Farms where I'm manager and trainer and I have a full barn of mostly training horses we show um, on the national circuits. We don't really have Trillium and A circuit in the dressage world. We have kind of the, just bronze, silver, gold and then CDI 
And yeah, so I've been here for over five years now. Wonderful. Well, that's a myriad of experiences for you guys. Everyone has really different backgrounds, but um, one of the questions that came up quite often when I was asking people what they wanted to hear about, and it sounds like this is people that might be a little bit younger that are thinking about a, a career in the equestrian industry was regarding, you know, school and what was your thought process around for those of you guys who did go to uh, post-secondary education um what was your thought process around that was that your intention to follow through with school or was it just like um somebody said a backup or something to do ali said if there's anything that you would change would you still go to school and if you didn't go to post-secondary education. I'd like to know if that's something that you regret doing or that you're happy about. So vice versa. And I'm going to hop to Didi. I think um, the reason why, okay, growing up, I, I um, definitely knew that I wanted to do horses for a living, but to actually like commit to that is, is kind of scary because it's so out of the norm, at least for where I grew up. I grew up in Oakville. Everybody at my high school went to university is almost even like frowned upon if you went to college which is just so wrong because there's so many successful people that don't even go to school at all but um regardless if for me it was just expected I guess to go away to school and my parents they wanted me to just go to school for something anything they just said just get an education there's not, no harm getting an education if you still want to do horses at the end of it that's fine but you just need to go to school for something and I, social work really interests me. And if I didn't do horses, I would do addictions counseling, I think is what interests me the most. That's always interested me. Going to school is good. And so for so many different reasons in the horse world, you're communicating with your horses all the time, but I'm sure everybody here can agree that there's very <laughs> few trainers that have great people skills. So I think when you go away to school, it teaches you the social aspect and just how to communicate with different people and um, manage different personalities. Because I think a big downfall of this industry is um, sometimes the way that the professionals uh, conduct themselves with their clients and with other professionals in the industry. So I think just getting different experiences like that when you're young helps you in the long run. That's such a great point. Yeah, and I everyone's like nodding their heads while you're talking, but I'm gonna hop over to Shannon and then get your take on it. So I didn't do anything post-secondary. Um, I do wish I did, but life, I kind of had this life altering experience that kind of forced me to continue with the horses, continue working in barns and things like that in order to keep my own horse and to be able to keep riding. Um, I was working at a vet clinic uh, for about six years and that was kind of the role I was going to continue with, um, either vet school or vet tech. But due to the massive life change, I kind of had to go, okay, well, I need to make money right now. And I had to work so many hours in order to afford the horse's board, right? So it wasn't really something I was ready to let go of and clearly I'm still doing it. So I'm still not ready. <laughs> but yeah, I definitely would have gone post-secondary if I could have. But at the same time, that experience at that time was probably the worst thing that ever happened to me. Whereas now I think it's the best thing that ever happened to me because 
I was able to kind of get out of my shell. I'm a shy person to begin with. So I was able to get out of my shell and really have to work for my own way in the horse world, dealing with certain individuals and this and that. And you really have to kind of not take things so personally. Um, And that's one thing that I really was never good with because I was raised to worry about what everyone thinks of you and this and that. Whereas now it's, you can't change people and you work as hard as you can. And that's what you do. And I probably wouldn't have continued in the horse world if it wasn't for that experience, which I'm very grateful for um, because I love what I do. And I think it's a job that you can do even without, you know, papers behind you and things like that. Um, The experiences you get, whether it be through clinics, um, different coaches, which I was very um, privileged to be able to go to Florida and ride and train and things like that. Um, Some of the trainers I've had in the past are amazing as well. And they were also, you know, their lives were poured into this and they didn't go to post-secondary education as well. So they were very much like on the same boat as me. So whenever I'd sit there and be like, oh, I'm not smart enough. They're like, you can ride, like you're fine. <laughs> um, and, and same with the people skills. Like, you know, I completely agree with Didi in the sense of going to school and it just gets you that social life. Whereas I, I'd probably go to a party and just talk about horses at this point. <laughs> so <laughs> it's like showing up and being like, oh, here are my kids. And I'm uh-huh. like, yeah, here's mine. <laughs> oh my God. It's so, so yeah, I, I definitely would have done post-secondary if if I could, my first coach, Linda Brady actually said to me, she's like, don't buy a horse until you're done high school and you're done university. And then I bought one at 16 and then things happen. So, I mean, you go with punches that, you know, life rolls at you, but at the same time, you make what you can out of it. Right. Fantastic. And I'm just going to jump over to Allie. I grew up, my mom was very much, you either find a job that pays for what you love or you do what you love for a job. So you have to pick which route you're going to go. And I always thought I was going to go the route, going to find a job that pays for what I do. I really don't want my mortgage payments to depend on training horses. I think I'm going to lose the love for it. So that was what, you know, growing up, I never wanted to be a horse trainer, but instead of getting kind of a shitty part-time job, I'm not sure if I'm supposed to say a crappy part-time job at uh, Timmy's or you know, a restaurant or something. I was like, well, I'll just put an ad out on Kijiji and I'll do some freelance training while I'm in school. And it was never a question that I was going to go to school because it's something like my grandparents came over from the war and it was real in Germany, they're German. And it was very important for them that they could support us getting an education. Um, and it meant a lot to them. So that pushed me to go to university where I'm studying psychology. But because I'm training horses seven years later, I'm still working on my undergrad. <laughs> Um, I think I have one course left, but uh, I find it a little bit difficult for a work-life balance. So I've taken a very minor second job. I started volunteer firefighting with the local fire department. So that's something a little bit fun to keep me out of the barn and down the road. That might be a route that I go, not that I would ever stop being a pro, but cut down on it and have another income source to support, you know, that I don't have to train horses or I don't have to sell a horse it's more that I can keep the love and still do it very competitively and professionally. Do you have a picky eater? Have you tried changing your horse's feed, supplements, mixing sugary treats in like carrots, apples, molasses, applesauce, the whole thing with no success? Equine Omega Complete will help take the inflammation out of the digestive tract of your horse with as little as four days. Become a believer and watch them lick their feed dish clean. 
Check out the website for more information at www.southernequineomegacomplete.com and use the discount code PODCAST21 for 15% off your order. That's a great point. I'll start with Amy. Yeah, for sure. I feel like a lot of ground has been covered here and I feel like I relate to a lot of the points that Dee Dee and Ali made. Um, again, for me, university wasn't really wasn't really a choice. Um, I remember when I when I first caught the bug, we had a boarder. Uh, I think I was a teenager and she was a sort of elderly amateur and she was having issues with her horse. So I remember the first $10 I made for riding this horse and helping her out and it kind of hooked me. And I thought, well, that's pretty cool. I love riding and I can make some money doing it. So maybe that's what I want to do. And I remember my parents bringing in a friend of theirs who was in business in Halifax and he sat my sister and I danced my sister was is the same as me she is also a freelance trainer <laughs> and he basically tried to talk us out of being horse trainers and we were like okay I guess you're right we need to make real money <laughs> so similar to Ali it was always you should make money to pay for your horse not you should do horses for uh, for a living um, and I really did think I was going to do that. Um, I love studying finance um, and I really thought I might be able to sort of sell my soul into the office life, but um, I had an office job in university in the summers and I spent every summer just wishing I was at a horse show and outside, like that's all I wanted to do. So uh, between that and by the end of my finance degree, I had some moral issues with the finance world. So I just decided that's, that, that I can't be inside working in an office. I need to, I need to do what I, what I want to do. So that's kind of my take on it. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, and Katie. Um, yeah. So like, I guess like a couple other people, my parents are not horsey and, you know, it was very much funded by myself, like even through high school. I mean, I was like the definition of a barn rat. I still am, um, if we're being honest. Uh, so going to university was never an, even an option in, in my house. Like to not go, you had to go. Um, or like you were moving out of the house, you were paying your own bills. Like I love my parents, but um they're super strict and, and I do credit a lot of like where I am to how I was raised with that. So um, when I was a teenager, I actually got really, really badly hurt when I was 16 in a riding accident. Um, I broke a bunch of bones, I had whiplash, big concussion. Um, and the way the medical industry treated me at the time was awful. Like, you know, I went to my doctor's three weeks later and he was poking at my collarbone and he's like, oh, when did you break this? And <laughs> nobody diagnosed it even though I was x-rayed for an hour and a half um so you know I, I was kind of your typical uh type a student I guess in high school so I got good grades so I appeased my parents and was like I'm gonna go and be a doctor and I'm gonna revolutionize the healthcare industry um which obviously has not happened but I've always been really interested in you know, human kinetics and how the body works. And um, so when I found that biomedical sciences program at Guelph, it seemed like the perfect route. And, you know, within that program, we sort of called it pre-med. Um, 
if I'm being honest, I didn't really admit to myself that I really early on knew that I wanted to do horses full time. I, you know, you, you start out loving this and you want to do what you love, but you do have to put food on the table. And I mean, we all know you're not going to get rich doing this, um, but you'll live a really rich life. I added a business minor in my last year. So I was in school for five years and the business minor has been great for doing like the business side of the industry and definitely like the communication or those dreaded taxes at the end of the year. It's nice actually having an understanding. And I try to like tell all my students this who want to work in this industry, get a degree in something that you enjoy. And it doesn't have to be a degree in horses. Like if you like psychology or, you know, understanding how people work or how the body works, there's so many options because there are so many nights I have gone to bed and been like, what am I doing? Like, am I going to be able to afford to pay for my truck? And, you know, oh my God, I have five students who want to go to the show. I have a two horse trailer. How am I going to make that work? And I can't afford to upgrade the trailer. So just knowing that you kind of have a backup plan and that you're going to be okay. Um, for me, it feels like a safety net. Well, I think there's a through line with what everyone said, which is funny because I think the next question was one that was asked over and over, which was, has there ever been a time where you wanted to change careers or you felt like maybe you shouldn't be doing what you're doing? So I don't think we'll go through that because it looks like everybody has really had those moments where they question what they're doing. Um, and there's an allure to doing a, like to kind of investing in a career with horses and something that you're so interested and passionate about. But another point that all of you guys made was sometimes uh, at the end of the day that fades and it's your job and it's not always, you know, the nicest. Um, but I'm gonna move on into questions that I got about, we all have different business models. <clears throat> I think every horse person does, it's so different. I had a lot of questions about what is the favorite, like your favorite facet of your business in terms of sales, training, teaching, showing, all that kind of stuff. And then I had questions about like, what do you feel, or breeding, that's another one that came up. Uh, what do you feel is the most viable and or lucrative in terms of a business? And what is actually your favorite part? So I think I will just go ahead and start with, I'll start with Amy for this one. I am going to start off by saying, I would say my business model is not the most lucrative. <laughs> um, strictly freelance teaching is, it's hard. Uh, it's a lot of travel and you don't get to make the same sort of connections as far as, um, you know, finding the horses for clients all the time. A lot of them want that independence. They want to find the horse themselves. So when it comes to something like sales, which can be super lucrative, it's really hard. Uh, it's hard to make money doing that. Um, my favorite part of it is probably teaching when you get that light bulb moment, you've been working on something and your student goes, Oh, that's what you meant. Oh, and like that, that's my favorite. I think it close second is when they go and repeat that in the show ring. But I think the best part is the first time it happens. So going back to my business model, it is strictly freelancing. There have been days where I go to eight barns a day and it's, it is a little bit crazy. Um, I don't do that many anymore. I try to consolidate, 
definitely cuts down on travel time and obviously you are going to make more money in one place. I have always wanted to have my own barn and then consistently changed my mind. <laughs> uh, but I think that's a personal preference as far as what I want to take on and what my kind of boundaries are, what my, I have a very low risk tolerance as far as, you know, large investments. <laughs> um, so when Katie's talking about, you know, do I have enough money to make, you know, my truck payment? Like, that is stressful. <laughs> yes, very. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. So that, I mean, that's my business model. I don't recommend it to that many people because it's, it's, it's hard to sustain it. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I'm going to jump to Didi. Okay. I honestly, I love a lot of what I do. I, I love teaching when the student tries. I don't love teaching people who don't try. Um, I like teaching people who want to learn and people who put the effort in. I, I, I love teaching when I'm in that position, teaching those type of clients. I agree with Amy, like one of my favorite things is when you see your student go into the show ring and do exactly what you discussed and it just feels so good. Like I literally get goosebumps. Um, there's been so many times where a student has gone in and just executed everything perfectly or close to perfect and I literally got goosebumps and could tear up in the moment. It's just so such a good feeling. My favorite part is horse showing. I, I typically a good show ring rider, so I, I don't really get nervous and I ride generally well under pressure. So I really enjoy um, horse showing and it's even better when you're not paying the bills and it's your client's horses. That's the best. But it's still, um, it's really rewarding when you are bringing one of your own along. And this year I have one of my own to, to take to the shows, which will be nice. I just imported her. So that's going to be exciting for me. Yeah, the most lucrative part I would say is the sales. It really is, except it's, it is risky, obviously. But that, that is for me, for what I do, where I make the most money, for sure. There's been times where I think, I have thoughts, maybe I, maybe I want my own stable, like, which sounds appealing because you get to make all the decisions, but then it's super not appealing with all the overhead and trying to make the ends meet. So I was so happy to do what I did overseas and then just get paid to ride. And then the reason I came back here was because again, I didn't have to lease the stable. I was just getting paid to train at the first stable at Shenandoah and then when we went our own ways and when I went to work for Carly again same thing I get to ride all these nice horses I get to do the teaching I get to do sales but again no overhead and then that's kind of what I find the most comfortable also at the end of the day I still get to spend time with my family and and my close friends so not having that complete commitment of having the stable as your own is honestly very uh freeing <laughs> yeah and so um I think I'm gonna jump to Allie I you mentioned that you're out of Winterwood right um, yep. and is that a lease situation for the facility no so there's an apartment on the facility um so the owners they're really wonderful they live here they have their house and then my boyfriend and I live in the apartment um on the property so board and training are run completely separate but I get to live here in exchange for managing the farm so I 
I do night jack and we turn in the horses, but we don't um, do morning chores or stalls. Uh -huh. So I can, I get to spend all my time training, but I still have control over, you know, who is here and how the barn functions and who works here and, and how the horses get cared for. I'm quite particular. I've never lived where my horse is not. Um, since I was four years old, I've always been on the same property as my horses. So I don't, I was thinking about that the other day. I'm like, I don't know when I've ever lived somewhere where I wasn't responsible for the care of over 30 horses. I was, I was thinking about that. I'm like, you know, a four day vacation is a really long vacation. I was thinking about it. I don't know the last time I had a day off, right? And to me, a, a six hour day is a day off because most days are between 12 and 15 hours. Um, so talking about that, a couple of the other ladies mentioned that work-life balance thing. I'm not very good at it. Um, and it's something I am working to improve. My businesses, I do a little bit of sales. I don't really like it because I like to really love my horses that I work with. And so when they come in for sales, I find there's a disconnect because I know they're leaving. Right. So I, I don't like to sell my own horses. I don't like to sell other people's horses. I'll do it. I, I have made some money in the past that way, but it's not the business model I want to build my business on. I like the day-to-day -day training of the horses that are here. I still do a little bit of freelance because that's what I did before I got the position here and I didn't want to drop all the people that supported me when I was first starting. So I keep a select group um, down in Ancaster way that I work with twice a week. And then otherwise I'm here at the farm. Awesome. Yeah, it's everyone is a little bit different. So it's awesome to have the different perspectives. And I'm going to jump then to Katie and then to Shannon. Um, so I think like everybody, like my business model is a, a bit different. Um, I actually started all freelancing. Um, um, I did have my own little truck and trailer and I drive to the client's barn and pick up their horse and take them to the show and then drop them off and then drop my rig off. Um, back at home or wherever I was keeping it at the time. And over the years I that I had had just a, a couple people approach me about either managing or leasing their facilities. And I had always turned them down um, because for me, it was something, I'm a bit of a control freak, I guess. And, and the thought of leasing and not being in control really freaked me out. Um, and I was really wary of building a business somewhere that then I would maybe have to relocate it. Uh, acquaintances of mine that I've, I'd known over the years purchased a, a property that had coached out of a little bit, a couple times, um, but I knew of it and I had loved it. And they approached me about leasing it and it seemed like the right next step at the time. Um, we've, we've taken the lease. We've um, been here for just over a year. Uh, it's awesome. Um, it helps satisfy all my control freakish tendencies. I get to manage everything from turnout, uh, the stall placement. I mean, I do the boarding, um, but I don't, like all the boarders I have are generally in a program with me. Um, so whether that's a couple lessons a week or I've got a couple horses in training here um, and I've got a couple of my own on site as well. Um, for anybody who runs a boarding barn, the boarding ideally keeps the lights on. And then I do still freelance. Um, I try to make like routes. So I'm not, like Amy said, bouncing all over between a bunch of different places. Sometimes that's difficult. Um, but some days it's just not possible to go drive 
an hour and a half round trip for one person when you've got three or four horses to ride and five lessons to teach on site. But yeah, so that's kind of my business model right now. So I love the competing. I always have. I find it way more stressful when my students are in the ring um, because you can't like be in there nitpicking and, and you want to help, but you have to just let them, them do it. So the competing is always going to be like my favorite, but I absolutely love the training and the teaching. And like other people have said, the little victories. Fantastic. And I lastly, we'll talk to Shannon. Well, I've definitely sold my soul. <laughs> um, I, as everybody said, as soon as you're living on the property and you've, you know, you're the one managing everything on top of paying everything and everything, um, you really do hand off your life. And it's something that I was told earlier when I started the career, um, you can either make your horses your hobby or your lifestyle. I don't, I, I, I don't think I meant to do it purposely, <laughs> but it, it's similar to Katie where I had boarded and I had done this and that and the freelancing and just not having that control really bothered me because you'd put all this work into a horse or a student. And at the end of the day, you didn't control what that horse was getting or turnout or anything like that. So you were kind of fighting the odds that way. Um, so similar to Katie, I started off freelancing and Amy as well, where I was just driving everywhere. Like, I think I put 200,000 kilometers on my car one year <laughs> and it got to the point where I couldn't afford to keep up the car. I couldn't afford to put the kilometers on it, put the gas in the tank, and then still have myself be a full glass for other people. So I was kind of running myself ragged. I had a few people approach me where they were like, you know, we see how you take care of your horses because I would rent like a block of stalls in those barns. And they said, you know, what do you think about if we were to board with you, if you were to go somewhere? So that kind of started into the leasing of facilities. But as everybody's also said, you know, you could be building your business and doing so well. And then all of a sudden you need to relocate the next day. So that I found to be probably the hardest part with leasing. Um, and that's kind of what's changed my business model because I was doing you know, boarding, training, sales, things like that. Whereas now it's changed because we've moved, moved locations, bought the facility, um, but we've had to build the facility as well. So with building the facility, I, barns are expensive. <laughs> um, and I, I was able and very fortunate to be able to get a nine stall barn, but I own quite a few horses. So I'm not able to offer the boarding because we're building paddocks as we go. I found, and I don't know if everybody else agrees with this, but I found with boarding, like you said, it only keeps the lights on. It's not paying. Sometimes you're paying out of your own pocket to keep somebody else or somebody else's horse there because you want to go above and beyond and you want to help as much as you can, or you see a horse that's maybe not gaining the same as others. You want to give that much more hay, but it all costs more, right? Or you get a dirtier horse or this and that. So my business model at this point in time is the breeding and lessons. Um, I'm making a decent amount with the lessons. We've got about 40 students now and it's keeping me very busy. <laughs> but I think the thing I love the most about this business is I've been able to dabble a little into therapeutic and I found my heart in that, I think. I, I love teaching my students. I love bringing them to shows. I love, you know, even if they don't get a ribbon, they still come out of the ring smiling because I've always instilled the fact that you're just here to have fun whatever happens happens if you don't come home with a ribbon well thankfully they've you know gotten their ribbon so they've been happy but um 
I dabbled in therapy for a wee bit and to see people either being adults or students or kids, sorry, open up when you think they wouldn't, just seeing what the animal can do for them. It kind of brought me back as to why I fell in love with these animals and how they became my best friend. And then I became that crazy horse girl that shows her photos of horses at parties. And um, that's definitely where the direction of my business will be going is therapeutic. But with therapeutic, doing the therapeutic and dabbling in it has actually made me want to partake in courses to be able to be certified to do it. In a way, you know, without having a post-secondary and this and that, being able to get those experiences kind of brought me into a new business that I'd really like to, you know, put my foot into and offer here. (laughs) That's so exciting. So I'm going to move on and talk about, I got a lot of questions about training young horses, starting horses. There was a a lot of questions. So I'm going to try to like lump that into one or two questions, I guess the most prevalent is, you know, how have you learned your skill sets with training horses? And how do you think you approach starting horses or training young horses? Like, is there anything unique that you like to do? I got a lot of questions about specific like tack and all that. So we won't get into the nuances because we just simply don't have the time. But if you have a method or what you like to see, what you like to start with. I know people are really interested in that and it may not be young horses. It may just be horses that come in for training or need a restart, that kind of thing. Um, so if you guys want to start with that alley, I'll, I'll start with you on the horse training side. Sure. So I, I don't do a lot of restarting of horses. I really don't want to get hurt. I can't really afford to get hurt. So I try not to take something in the program. That's not what I specialize in. I'm trying to create competition horses that are good partners for amateurs. Um, I have a lot of appreciation for those who do, Um, but you know, going back with that, you have to pay your bills. I just tore, about three years ago, I tore my meniscus lunging a horse. Um, And I live, I tore my meniscus and my ACL. I lived with it for three years and it was aggravating a lot. So I finally did the surgery and that was a simple thing. A horse jerked a lunge line while I was lunging and I stood my ground and twisted and I had to take two months off and, you know, revamp my business for a few weeks that I was really unable to do anything. Um, So that put me in perspective how much I have to protect myself because that's my money-making. So when I start young horses, pretty much all the ones coming into my program, I've known them since they were born. I know the breeding farms. I know what kind of handling they've had. I know the people who've been handling them. So that gives me a lot of confidence in what I'm dealing with to start the young horses. Dressage gets a lot of flack for all you ride with really short reins and really big bits and you make them prance around. Um, But I like to start them without a discipline. I start them all in a loose ring snaffle or an egg butt or a D ring, but nothing other than a snaffle. Um, a close contact saddle, usually with a half pad, so things are a bit less intimidating. And then once they don't kill me, walk, trot, canter in the arena, then we go out on the trails and work around the paddock, sometimes with a buddy, um, get them to the point where they're on their own. And then they start to be a dressage horse, but not until they can jump a cavaletti, they can go through poles, they can hack, um, they can take a joke, and then they start to become dressage horses and get a dressage saddle. Some horses that takes a month, some that takes three or four months. I try not to have a strict timeline. Um, I also, again, I don't market myself to start horses, but it's only those that I have relationships with the breeders. 
Um, I'm gonna hop over to Katie. So yeah, definitely, I think I'm a bit similar to Allie in that way. Starting young ones isn't my forte, um, or in the sense like it's not a huge part of my business. I will do it. Um, I've gotten bucked off my fair share. And I mean, with horses, just in general, that's kind of a, a risk you take. Um, but yeah, like to second Allie, like if you get hurt, that again is is your income. Um, you know, I had a scare a couple months ago where I thought I broke my back and I luckily didn't. And it was just really bad soft tissue damage. But again, that was kind of eye-opening for me. Um, you know, I was lucky the big barn, the venting barn that I grew up at, they had a really, they did breed some of their own horses and they got some young ones in. Um, so we actually would do a ton of groundwork and just know that the like baby is respecting you on the ground. Um, it, it makes sense. Um, if they don't respect you on the ground, they're not going <laughs> to respect you when they're on, you're on their back. Um, and we would get them like walk track canner on the lunge line. And then we would actually sit on them at two, you know, just really lightly sit on them. Maybe you would walk around the arena. Um, and then at three years old, well, they would start them at two, they'd get chucked out over the winter. Um, you'd pull them back out at three and you'd basically just spend a lot of time hacking. Um, and that was something that was, you know, over the years, the coaches have drilled into me. It seems to be a very North American thing that you start them in the arena and they're in their corners and, you know, they're always on the wall. Um, whereas it's more European where you back a baby in the middle of the field and you get on and you go for two hours and then they're good to go. So I don't, do that but as soon as they're three we try to get them out and hacking and exposed to like everything you can so but the one thing I, I always try to take into consideration is the size I mean we have one here right now who is not even three and almost 18 hands so you know I won't really be sitting on him while he's two we'll probably wait till he's three and then everything will be pushed back because you just want to be careful with the joints and and everything yeah, for sure. And um, I'll just take it to Didi, your take on developing horses and, and how you like to approach it. Sure. So um, I, I don't market myself as somebody who starts babies. Um, it's, I wouldn't say that's my forte. I have done it, but it's definitely not my focus. I prefer developing the horse once it's already been broke and Generally, the types of horses that come to me, I seem to find are um, horses that I'm, maybe they haven't been to a horse show yet, maybe they have, but regardless, they're kind of on that path and then I'm going through the levels with them. I think I'm, I feel like what I'm good at is keeping a horse's confidence. So moving up through the levels while keeping them confident, I definitely wouldn't say I push them too fast, but I think I challenge them just enough so that we're not jumping, you know, the same height for three years. Um, and, but every horse progresses kind of on its, at its own level. Um, you can't, you can't have a, you can't have a plan in mind for a horse. You have to just go with the flow. Some horses, they take much longer to develop than others. And some horses, they surprise you and they're able to move along a little faster, but sometimes it can get tempting to move along quickly if you feel like the horse is ready to, but if you I think if you're a pretty good trainer, then you know that even sometimes when the horse is showing you, they're able to move along a little quicker than others. Sometimes you still just keep them going a little slower than what they might think they're ready for. 
especially good at riding horses that have a little bit more blood and calming horses down like especially hunters that are a little bit tense and stressed I'm really good at making them a lot more relaxed same with same with jumpers I would say in general most people they light horses up I'm somebody that brings every horse down a notch. So when I ride a jumper, like I can get a time fault on anything. You can be the fastest horse in the world and I'll get a time fault. It's insane. Yeah, but it is a skill. It's a marketable skill. I would say that basically any junior amateur can find a lot more value in someone who can calm a horse down than, than can make one bloody. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I'm going to hop over to Shannon and then Amy. I definitely... I don't know why, but I absolutely love backing horses and going through the steps with them and watching them really kind of develop into their own horse and kind of see, okay, well, they like this, they don't like that, or they think this way, they don't think that way. I think it's, I'm less of a calm person. I'm quite hyper. So I think that's probably where I'm like, wow, like, let's go. The first thing and probably the thing I take the longest with is the groundwork. I really, really take my time with the groundwork, just getting their confidence with me, confidence with different objects, you know, getting their own balance a little bit. And kind of like Katie said, where you take your time based on the horse as well. Um, I don't really believe in the 30 day programs. Um, I find a lot of the time you're trying to push so much into their brain at once when really they can only think of one thing at a time. So it's, it, it's very stressful and some horses do well with it. They absolutely are like, yep, I got it. No problem. Whereas others, like I have a chestnut filly outside who has taken her time, but you know, there's other horses too, like my gray filly who I'm taking out on the trails this weekend and she's only been sat on maybe four times. So I definitely think groundwork's a huge thing. Um, but with the other horses and taking your time, you know, chance he's five years old now and he's probably around 18 hands but he even to look at like, people are like, does he have EPM? Because he doesn't know where his legs are. He doesn't have EPM. We've tested him and all that, but he's just this big gangly Dutch warm blood cross Belgium. So he's grown so fast. And then having to think about where those legs are. Um, I haven't started working with him until he was about four and a half or five. I was always taught kind of my approach was training horses. If I didn't know you and I jumped on your back, what would you do? Um, and an old friend of mine told me that. And I was like, oh, I guess that makes total sense. So I really like getting to know them, take my time. Um, and then, you know, based on that, get out of the ring as soon as possible and put them on trails, get them seeing things on different terrain, using their balance with the rider on them, but not sticking them in four walls and being like, okay, we'll figure it out. They just all have different personalities like people. And, and I'll just jump on with Amy about, and it doesn't even have to be, you know, like you guys mentioned starting horses and stuff. I did get a lot of questions just generally training and how you kind of approach things and, you know, developing confidence and security in those horses and your approach on that. I think it, it's so interesting because a bunch of people touched on, you know, spending so much time on the ground, um, getting to know the horse. And in my experience, definitely 100% important. Um, I spent five years at two different Hanoverian breeding farms breaking horses, but the first one was very much the type that would, they turned the horses out until they were three. They came in once every six weeks to get their feet done, and that was it. Like there were 70 horses on the property and under 10 staff. So you can imagine, you know, how much time these horses are getting. So when they came in at three and had to be broke, they were feral <laughs> and you had three hours to work with nine horses and there was only two of you. 
So, I mean, again, this is not what I suggest, but it was, you learned a lot. (laughs) I was lucky enough to have a mentor who helped me and she, I had had some experience with green horses, but not starting from scratch. Um, And I mean, she was just amazing teaching me. She was able to take her time, um, teach me, teach the horse at the same time. But you know, things that you take for granted, like uh, somebody mentioned using a half pad instead of a full pad. I mean, yeah, because these horses that I was working with had never had blankets on. So you put a saddle pad on and that can scare the crap out of them. So, you know, even just working saddle pad on, saddle pad off, saddle pad on, saddle pad off until, you know, that kind of thing is normal. But at the same time, you're trying to get stuff done. Um, One thing I think a lot of people take for granted is the energy they bring into a space with a horse. So especially when you've got something a little bit flaky, like a wild three-year-old Hanoverian, if you go in there with this big energy, um, they feel that and it's not going to go well. Um, I mean, you can say that about pretty much any horse at any time, but especially when breaking, I think you just, you need to go into this Zen place in your mind um, where you're not reacting, you're just observing and kind of like Dee Dee, but on the ground, like, okay, we're, we're, we're chill. It's all good. You know, we're going to take you down a few levels. Um, so, you know, I wish I could say that we, we got on and we did stuff and then we took them out, but unfortunately we didn't have the time. And I think it definitely would have been better had we been able to do that. Um, but it just was a little bit of a factory and just trying to get horses going. Um, another thing that I think is really important though in breaking horses is trusting your gut like having somebody on the ground that you trust but trusting your gut um, if something if, if you're something's telling you that you shouldn't do something don't um, I had to do a sales video of a three-year-old uh, and it had never trotted under saddle it had walked under saddle with somebody else but that person hadn't sat on as many babies as I had so they asked me to get on do the first trot under saddle on this lunge line and they take a video and they send it to the prospective buyer. So, you know, I was in my early twenties. Sure. I'll do that. No problem. (laughs) And of course I got bucked off. You know, you ask it to trot for the first time and this thing just exploded. Um, I got back on second time. It was fine. You got the video, but you know, it's things like that where people have mentioned you can really get hurt if you don't trust your gut. So I mean, (laughs) that's not like a training tip, but it kind of is trust your gut and like watch your energy, I guess. Um, As far as tack goes, I feel like that's been covered. Basic tack. um, I like to put, uh, what are they called? Side reins on at some point as you're after they've learned to lunge in a bridle. So they start to learn what contact is. I can't personally um, drive on the ground. I would love to learn that skill. I think that's a super useful useful skill they can learn to steer before you get on but I did I only rode one horse like that and that one was very girth sensitive so we thought it was going to probably buck once you got on it so it learned to steer first but yeah that's kind of my philosophy I mean you can get into so many nitty-gritty details as far as breaking goes trust your gut if you don't know the horse but I think I, I've been in so many situations that I'm I'm like Katie and, and Allie. I will do it, but I need to know that the horse has been handled and I need to do it from scratch because that way you know 
what kind of reaction you're going to expect. You know, does this horse like to stand up in the field? Well, it might stand up when you go to break it. Does it like to buck on the lunge line when you put the girth on? Okay, well, it might buck the first time it trots. Yeah. Um, so I think knowing all those things are really, really important. I know that you guys have heard me talk lots about Mad Barn. If you have not yet listened to our episode with Scott Caesar, he's the founder of Mad Barn. We talked all things equine nutrition a couple episodes ago. You can go back and have a listen. They have a comprehensive approach to feeding your horse. They provide nutrients while nourishing the microbiome. They help reduce costs, increase performance, and ultimately improve the well-being of your horse with their supplements. They simplify your feeding program, and they focus on the three pillars of nutrition, gut health, and performance. You guys know I use their products, but also if you just want to check out their website, it's www.madbarn.com. They have a plethora of resources for you to look at your horse's nutrition, analyze the diet, um, just look through their products and their testimonials and all kinds of different studies that are related to equine nutrition. I think it's very valuable and, and informative if you want to check it out. If you are shopping, you can use the discount code Spring and Act. That's spelled just the way it's spelled on the website or Instagram for 5% off of your order. And I will let you guys get back to the episode. Absolutely. It sounds like none of us are cowgirls, but uh, like, you yes. know, can I interrupt for <laughs> one before we move on? Yeah. I wanted to just say one, one more thing that I thought of. And then also just, I wanted to say how much I agree with what Amy just said about trusting your gut. It is so important. Like when it's with riding or training, when you're training clients, like it is insane. How many times I've thought in my head, I don't know if I really should point that horse at the, that jump. And then I just follow through with what I think and don't do it. Cause I feel like for whatever reason, I'm just saying, you know, maybe a specific spooky jump. I'm thinking, oh, I'm going to jump a couple more of these simpler jumps first before I aim this horse at that jump. And then I fall through and the odd times where I've not gone through with what my gut feeling is always, mm-hmm. it, it goes the way my gut's telling me it's going to go. Yep. One of the, one thing that I feel like maybe more up and coming trainers and maybe trainers in general should also uh, keep in mind when training is to try to adapt your training style a little bit more to what the horse's needs are. I, I see, and I, you, I get sometimes horses where they're like being groomed into going a certain way, but the horse clearly doesn't want to be ridden that way or like there's you have to ride the horse the way it wants to be ridden and train it the way it wants to learn I think that's one of the most important things to keeping the horses happy and confident too and I think everybody I mean any trainers has made that mistake where you think I just I'm not sure it'll be fine and then every single time something happens and um you know some great advice that has been here on the podcast before and that I've really learned like it's just it's something that just hits you in the head like a board all the time as a trainer is don't get greedy it's like you get this perfect course you want to just like jack one fence up or (laughs) it's like just do that line one more time and then that that's it right there like don't get greedy because something always happens so that's great advice so is there anything and Didi just mentioned one, but is there anything in the industry as a whole, or even in your section of the industry that you feel like could change or that isn't talked about openly? Do you have any advice around that? If there's anything that comes to mind, you know, you're at the show and you watch, 
I mean, every horse needs to be schooled from time to time, but sometimes you really just see someone like beating up on a horse, like pretty good. And you just think like, man, these horses don't have to let you ride them. Like, I don't know. It's just hard for me to watch sometimes because I think like they're getting nothing out of this. You know, this is all pleasure for, for your client who you're trying to set this horse up for. So I wish maybe it would just be a little bit more apparent when trainers are trying to get through to some horses like you know maybe that horse just isn't fit to go exactly to the t the way you're asking it to go or to do that exact job you're asking it to maybe it doesn't want to jump a meter 20 maybe it's suitable for 0.90 like absolutely I wish that would change yeah and everyone's nodding their heads yeah were you gonna say something amy you're on mute there you go i i, I really wanted to add on what dd said there um I think sometimes horses are pushed a little too much just to go to the horse shows. People are either chasing points and, you know, rather than giving the horse a break, it gets, it gets bandamine instead, you know? So, you know, further to that, listening to the horse and paying attention to what's going on. And to your point, Jess, you know, try not, I think it'd be great if people sometimes weren't as greedy as they are, you know, um, give the horse a little bit of a break, pay attention. You know, you're constantly having a conversation with the horse. Your whole ride is a conversation with the horse. So you say something to them, they respond. Now you have to respond back. It's not always the same thing. You're not always adding the same amount of leg pressure or hand pressure. I see it in a bit of the eventing world, and I'm sure it's in all the other disciplines too. Um, with my students, I have a rule that, um, especially with my eventers, you train a level higher than you compete. Um, and I say to them, and I, and I say it in a joking way, but I, I mean it seriously. If I'm sending you out on course, I need to know that you are going to come back to me in one piece. Um, and that's really important for me because I have gotten hurt doing it. And I don't ever want anybody to get hurt. We don't say, you know, none of us send our students out to fail. Um, and we want to see them succeed. So I think, you know, that goes with listening to the horse. Um, and then growing up in the eventing community, I mean, People look at me like I have two heads, but sometimes it does take you 10 minutes to get to your warm-up ring because everybody is stopping you and asking about your dog, your horse, your mom, your brother. And it's such, it sounds kind of goofy, but it's like really wholesome community. And maybe it's, you know, because we're eventing and we're all a little crazy galloping over those solid objects, you know, kind of more of that. I would love to see it in other disciplines too, that like, community support and that teamwork and you know I know so and so is my competitor and I'm going out against them but I also want them to come home safely and I don't wish anything bad and um, one of my previous coaches summed it up perfectly and, and he said be competitive in the ring and then leave it you know be friendly be supportive cheer everybody on like for me it'd be nice to like be able to cheer on an old client um, yeah, and that's such a good point to be made because I think this comes up a lot for people. There's a inherent competitive nature in our sport and many of us are very competitive people and um, it can get kind of negative and not as supportive as it could be. So even like, you know, us doing this is something that I really like and I wouldn't have really imagined as a younger professional because I felt really isolated in the industry and 
nervous. I agree with we're that. All like, yeah, we're all a little nervous and intimidated to talk to each other. And I think that this is something that needs to change for sure. So that's mm-hmm. a great point. And yeah, definitely. I'll just jump to, to Shannon quick. Oh, I totally agree with, you know, training aspects of the horses and not pushing them and pushing them and pushing them to the point where they break because like Dee said, it's an absolute privilege to be able to sit on these animals. At the end of the day, we're technically predators. So for them to allow them on our, or allow us on their back is just, you know, it, it really speaks for what they give to us and what, how they trust us and the domestication of them. But at the same time, you know, I agree with the student side of it as well of, you know, I don't believe now let's all hold hands and everything's fine. But at the same time, I feel there's a lot of people that leave the horse world because they've had such negative experiences for someone pushing their ego on them, if that makes any sense. Um, you know, I, I, I myself have left barns because it was just egos. And that's not why I ride. That's not the environment I want to be brought up in, in the sense of when I was younger, that's when I had left the barn and I lost the drive to compete. I lost the drive to want to ride. Um, it all became dramatic. Whereas when I moved to a show barn, um, my perspective of it really changed because the coach was more European based and the way he rode was different. So it really intrigued me to get back in the saddle and really push myself. Um, but he was also very understanding of comfort levels and not pushing beyond those. And that's why a lot of my coaching, even now, you know, I've got some students that don't even want to get on the horse. They just want to do horsemanship with them on the ground or do this. And, you know, the only way to allow somebody to push their comfort a little bit more is by gaining their trust and, you know, working within their comfort zone and then going, you know what, you can trust me. I'm telling you, you can do this. So just give it a try. I feel there's a lot of very talented people that have left the horse world just due to the fact that there's this pressure on them. And I've seen people walk out of the ring bawling their eyes out because they know they're going to get screamed at the second they go back to the trailer. And I don't find that very fair. Yeah. And that's such a good point. I think it's easy for young people to get really wrapped up in that if Mm -hmm. they don't have the right mentorship. And yeah, it's, it's good to talk about because it, it doesn't, it, it, you're right about the whole thing that you mentioned where perhaps professionals are pushing their egos on their students to perform in the ring. Maybe parents are, maybe that's a whole oh, other definitely. topic. No, we'll, we'll just leave it. We'll just leave it. Okay. But I, I'm like toddlers and tears. Allie's waving her hand. So I'm, you're, you're, you have the spotlight. I just want to say that we have to remember we talked a lot about how every horse is individual and they all learn different ways and they all excel in different ways like I recently a friend of mine who's a farrier brought me a jumper that was sitting in the field really beautiful like red to the nines and said you know do you think you can sell him he's broke you know he just needs some miles and maybe you can make some money and I'm like well that sounds like a fun project well the thing did not want to jump but anyway he's now a lovely dressage horse three years later so we talked a lot about that but every student is different also and not every coach is the right coach for every student. And I find a lot of people get really upset when a student leaves their program, but it's not always a bad thing. Sometimes, you know, I don't get coached well by someone who yells and, you know, some people get motivated by somebody else. They're like, well, if I'm not, you know, I'm getting yelled at, obviously then I don't care about how I'm doing. Um, and I think that a lot of, miscommunication happens because of different personality styles and teaching styles and learning styles get mashed up in the coach rider relationship 
And I think that's something I try to never end any client relationship on bad terms. There's no one who I'm worried about running into at a horse show or that I wouldn't say hello and ask how their horse was doing even after leaving my barn because it just for that moment um, or for that person, it was not the right fit. And I think that's something people, I think way earlier in the discussion, people said, but I think Shannon not taking things so personally. And that's something I think a lot of trainers get beat down like, oh, I did something wrong. I, you know, I should have done something differently for this horse and rider when for both to grow, it was better than they went different directions. Yeah, that's such an, a fantastic point because this comes up a lot too. I get so many questions about it. You know, my coach said this or they did that and I don't feel comfortable with this. And of course, you know, I like to support people, but I'm also not their coach. And at the end of the day, there's a onus on the professional and the student to understand what works for them. And I don't think there should be near as much shame around people moving to places or moving coaches or, you know, trying other things because eventually, you know, that leads to the success and the happiness of both parties. You don't want to be a coach teaching a student that isn't really, you know, your type of student and vice versa. So that's a super point. And we covered some really interesting ones. And back to what Didi and Amy were talking about, I just wanted to add on too. and here I am supposed to be interviewing, but yeah, I get a lot of experiences where I will try horses for people shopping, for instance, and get the lowdown on horses that are maybe difficult, difficult, or um, just generally mean, I'm not going to use the names that people like to kind of refer to horses as. Um, what I find commonly, for instance, I just bought one home three weeks ago that was just inexplicably angry. Uh, when I looked at it, probably something I shouldn't have brought home, but I just felt like it was a pain response. And I think what you guys were talking about in terms of the horses having a conversation with you, it's kind of heartbreaking sometimes to see people blatantly ignore those communications from horses um, because all that horse needed was a huge dental overhaul and it's a different animal. That was just an excellent point to be made. And I think that it's really important even for young riders who are listening to this to maybe pay attention to those little signals. Maybe your horse isn't having a bad day. Maybe they're actually hurting that kind of thing. Cause it's, it's something that come, I come across quite frequently and no one really talks about it. It's not always a training issue. Sometimes it's something else. So I just want to add on that. Cause I think you brought up another really good point. Um, for any young riders listening, we're going through a situation with one of my clients right now and other trainers in, in the past and not to speak poorly because I, I think there's more to the story, but if you are feeling that your horse is not right and somebody is telling you it's not, it goes back to what I think Didi said or Amy or everybody second like echoed it. Trust your gut. Don't let your coach tell you that it's nothing or it's fine. Like if you feel a hitch or something, I mean, we all know you can go and spend thousands and thousands of dollars on vet bills and diagnostics. But, you, you know, I've said it to my clients too, like, if you're insistent that it's something and the one vet doesn't believe it, well, let's get a second opinion. And if we can be open to that, I think it's an industry and even as trainers are, hey, I'm really struggling. I don't quite know what to do with this horse. What if we go to this clinic? And I think this clinician would be good or so-and-so might be good for a lesson or two. Um, I think we could do a lot um, 
and do well by the horses in that way and the students too. Yeah. And you saying that brought another different one to my head, but this is all great conversation. And I think everyone will really relate to it. The something I grew up with as a rider was um, dealing with professionals that I felt didn't have the humility to ever go, actually, I don't know the answer to this question, but let me get back to you. And then I found that this created a lot of issues ongoing because you might be getting an answer, but it might be completely the wrong one just because perhaps that professional, that trainer or that coach just didn't want to admit that they really didn't know the answer. Um, and, and of course, as a young person, you look at that and you emulate it at times and there's a lot of pressure as young riders and young professionals to know everything. And um, it's fine, you know, I think that is probably the case in a lot of different careers. But in ours specifically, we're dealing with like these living animals and it actually impacts them when we deal with this issue. So I don't know, you guys all nodded your heads like this is something that maybe you've come up against. Um, and it's something that too, as a young professional, I did because I felt the pressure uh, to, you know, be able to answer certain questions that maybe I should have actually just looked to someone else to answer. So um, if anybody wants to speak on that, Amy. Yeah, I think it, I think one of the best things you can say is I don't know. I, similar to you, I've worked for some people who they just make up answers. And when you start to realize from your side that they're making up answers, you're going to lose your respect for them. And even if what they're saying at some point is true, uh, you're never going to trust them. So I think being able to admit that when you don't know something and, you know, if it's a training problem and somebody asks me, why, why is this happening? Why is my horse flicking its head? Um, and I say, well, I don't know, but it could be, and I'll give them a bunch of potential reasons, but I'm not going to say for sure, because I'm may not be right. And I'm not going to pretend that I'm always right. Cause I'm definitely not. I think being honest is really important, especially, and I, I didn't want to go there, but like, as we're all young professional women, it can be hard to be taken seriously sometimes, at least when I was certainly in my earlier 20s, um, I found it hard for people to take me seriously and believe that I actually knew things. So I think just continuing to be honest, um, but also demonstrating that, you know, you're not saying I don't know, and I'm not going to find out, you're saying I don't know let's figure this out together. Yeah, I think is, uh, it, it's key. Yeah, I 100% agree. And I think the other side of it, you know, being young and people really not trusting your judgment in some degrees, like, there's nothing wrong with saying you don't know. And then, like, going back to the feeling your gut thing and trusting your gut. Um, you know, there's many times where I've worked with owners where oh, just ride it out of them, ride them out of it. And it's like, well, no, I'm the one sitting on their back. Like I can feel what that horse is trying to say to me. So it's, it's one of those things that you need to kind of detach yourself from it in a way. It's hard to sit there and constantly fight to be heard. I think that's the hardest thing being a younger trainer. Um, whereas if you sit back and you go, you know, I don't know how to get through to this client. That could be another way of being, I don't know either. You've gone to your this, that. I, I even went as far as paying for a um, PEMF session with this one horse because I was convinced it was pain. 
And sure enough, the guy just about fell on his face as soon as that thing touched his body because he was like, oh my gosh, this is the best thing ever. The owner chose not to um, continue because she thought it was attitude. So it also goes into training and even riding your own horse and this and that. If somebody says, no, no, keep pushing him through, keep pushing it through. Don't feel wrong in saying, no, I don't feel this is right. You know what I mean? Like take that step. I try to advocate to all my clients that they do truly know their horse best. And if they think something is wrong, I say, okay, what, why do you think something is wrong? You know, I'm not seeing what you're feeling, but if you think there's something wrong, you know, the vet is coming out next week or how about we have the farrier look, or I try to refer to other professionals in that, not as a, I don't know what's going on, but that there's experts in this field. And as a trainer, we know a lot about the horses in their everyday, you know, especially if you manage the farm, like, you know, how they eat, how they drink, you know, are they um, not as willing to reach down for their hay on the floor? Maybe they got shots the other week and it's a reaction to the shot, right? You know, sometimes there's simple answers we can piece together, but when it's not simple, I try to refer to a vet or farrier or the chiropractor or the saddle fitter, and I work myself more as the liaison between the specialist and the client and bridge that gap, because I want, I don't want the liability, right? I've had people come and say, you know, a horse is mildly lame, and my previous barn owner, you know, told me it was fine, and then the horse had a significant founder, and the horse was just really stoic about it. So, no, I'm the idiot, because I said the horse is fine, but it was presenting like a stone bruise. So I said, leave it a week and give it some butte and hope things are okay. So I find the best way to avoid that without being dumb. And you learn a lot too. And I say, you know, or I'll say, if this was my horse, this is the route I would take, but this is your horse. So, you know, let me know how you want to proceed and put it in the client's hands. They'll feel like they have more control over the situation. They're going to learn more um, because they're more hands-on in the in the process and hopefully you'll have a good outcome at the end. I just wanted to second what Ali just said about giving your client your opinion in terms of, you know, if this was my horse, this is probably the route I would take. But if you want to call the vet, like we can totally do that. Or the farrier is going to be out in a couple of days. We can let him take a look or whatever it might be, but giving them that option. So it's not you not even to say like that you need to be right or wrong, but just that you are not the expert in everything, right? Like you're presenting yourself as a horse trainer. So don't present yourself in a lameness expert or <laughs> in a foot expert. Like we're there to train the horses. And even that, who's, who's really the biggest expert in that? Like even we need help with that sometimes. I feel like there's probably everybody has clients that have been to other stables where they don't have much of a say like I'm sure a lot of a lot of clients have been to stables where you know it's like the, the trainer's way or the highway or their opinion or the highway so yeah for sure it is a collaborative approach I mean yeah be successful there's you I think there's a like a false reality that some young riders see with top level riders or even just high level riders and they kind of see the tip of the iceberg and they don't see everything that goes into that. Um, at the end of the day, there's a lot of different professionals that we need to keep the horses going the way that we need to keep them going. So that was all really awesome. 
is there anything that I get a lot of people that are interested in being involved in the industry, whether they are junior or amateur writers or they're people that are interested in actually having a career in the industry. Is there any piece of advice that you would leave them with um, aspiring equestrians or people who are involved? Looking back on your experience up to this point, something that maybe you learned the hard way, mistakes you've made along the way, anything that you could leave them with on this episode? I think the best thing to do if you want to do this professionally is to get obviously as much experience as you possibly can. You cannot learn this stuff from a book. I think getting as much hands-on experience as possible is the best route. And also maybe putting yourself in situations where it's a little bit of different approaches. I say this because I spoke about how I had learned a lot from Sue Fish and her style and her horsemanship and this and that. But then after going overseas, I also saw that side, which was, I don't want to say it's like the opposite end of the spectrum, but it's completely different. So I was kind of able to take a little bit of what I learned from everywhere and mesh it into what I think works best with certain horses or in certain situations. And I think if I would have only been exposed to one style, then that's all you know, right? Try to learn as much as possible even, um, you know, having friends that are kind of more focused on the horsemanship part versus the training on the horse's back or the showing of the horses. I feel like just learning as much as possible and then continue to learn just because you're, you, you've declared yourself as a professional doesn't mean you can stop or should stop taking lessons. Um, I still take lessons and I think everybody still should take lessons even once they become professional. There's always someone that does it better than you. So why not try to keep learning more? <laughs> I think, you know, whether or not you want to be a professional or just show on the weekends, I think you need to have like a real conversation with yourself about what you want your life to look like. Because I think it's easy to glamorize a lot of this industry. And as we've kind of I think made it fairly clear that it, it's it's a lifestyle when you when this is your job this is your your life so you know not just looking at the horse shows I mean that they're amazing and it's so great to you know go into the ring come out of the ring feeling good um, but you know are you going to be missing you know can you sacrifice missing your cousin's wedding or you know family events that kind of thing what's important to you and what does it look like in your life? How does it all fit together? Um, it's something that I've certainly, ha I've had that conversation with myself a lot lately. Um, and then I want to touch on what BB said as well, just staying curious, um, constantly learning and, you know, and practicing, um, you know, what works on one horse doesn't work on another. Um, and do your flat work. <laughs> That's another big one for me as a general riding thing. But um, yeah, that those those are my pieces of advice. Two quick things. Uh, one is like know your horsemanship. And still, you know, in Pony Club, we have to be able to close our eyes and pick our horse out of a group by feeling their legs, right? Like little things you have to know, know your horse, know the horsemanship, know why you do the things you do. Um, another thing is learn from all the disciplines. Right. I'm a dressage trainer by trade, but I, you know, was doing derbies on the silver circuit. 
last year and playing in the meter 20s with jumper and then I showed dressage and then I took a Clydesdale to the world Clydesdale show and played with the draft horse people they're a hoot they love to party um I've driven I've driven standard breads I've jousted I've tried polo and all these experiences within the horse industry I bring back to my training philosophy and how I work with horses so you know maybe you're a hunter rider go try sorting cows one weekend um you know maybe you ride dressage but try some competitive trail do as much as you can within the horse world because there's so much to offer there's so many different ways to have fun with horses sure yeah I think everybody's really touched on a bunch of super super points um you know my experience growing up in a pretty strict household and if I wanted it it was do it myself um I would say to anybody in that situation, it's okay if it feels impossible, um, but the best thing you can do for yourself is get as much education as possible. And I've said it to my students too, if they've gone to a clinic and they haven't been happy coming out of it, even if you learn 10 ways that don't work, that's getting you one way closer to what works. And maybe it didn't work with this horse, but maybe it'll work on the next horse. So like what Ali said, do as much as you can with your horse, fully support that. And I'm behind it um, and work for, like I've been a working student for eventers. I've been a working student for a Grand Prix dressage rider, um, you know, show jumpers. Like you, you can learn something from everybody and you can never know too much. Um, and I, I don't know, my, my favorite expression is you don't know what you don't know. And when you feel like you know everything, um, that's probably when you're in trouble because that means you're not curious anymore. And I guess another point too, like you kind of raised it, Jess, listening to all of us talk, we all have such different business models and you can go out and, and make a splash in this industry if you work hard enough and if you have a, a supportive enough network. And I mean, your support crew is your family and your students and your friends. Um, it's also your vets and your farriers and the Cairo and massage and develop those relationships, um, be supportive of each other. And um, the other thing I'll say too, is if you do want this lifestyle, um, make sure your significant other is, is in it too. Um, I'm so lucky that I'm with somebody who loves fixing stuff on a farm, which is great because there's always stuff to fix on a farm and, you know, he'll get up at 4am and do trailer runs when we have four horses and a two horse trailer. Um, be understanding and be thankful for the opportunity to do this because, you know, it's it's hard and it is exhausting. And yeah, they, there are days where it is literally 24 hours um, and those are the hard days, but then there's also really, really, really good days. And you have to be thankful to everybody that's gotten you there. What Katie touched on as well is, you know, don't be afraid to really put your feet in the ground and work for it. Um, just because you don't come from money doesn't mean you can't make it in the horse world. Um, I feel like a lot of us will agree with that. Um, I myself couldn't afford part board or anything else. So, you know, it was stay at the barn in the cabin, the really sketchy cabin for the weekend and luck stalls and then you get to ride. And you, the other side of it too is don't be afraid to sit and watch other people's lessons because 
being able to see it on the ground, you know, as coaches, even ourselves, you can see what's going on. You can see how the horse is reacting to this. You can see the rider where they're kind of losing their balance or where they should be sitting or um, different things like that. You learn a lot by watching other people ride, even if it's the exact same course you just rode with your horse. Um, everybody will ride it different, even going through it. Like you said, a second time, you could ride it completely different and things go wrong. I look homeless half the time and I'm sitting there and I'm like, okay, time to ride horses. You know, there's barn, barns where you work and work and work and it's a privilege to ride. So I think keeping that in mind and also remembering why you got into it. I think that's the biggest thing because there are a lot of people in this world or industry that will beat you down and you know, it, it's, it's not on a purposeful um, vengeance type of thing, but it's, it's the industry sometimes. Um, and I think staying true to why you really got into this will get you back on the horse each time instead of just quitting. And, you know, I can't reach that. I can't do this. I'll never be like that. You know, you have a really bad fall and it's, it's kind of affected your confidence that day. You know, the best thing you can do is just get back on and work through it. Um, you know, there's many times where being a barn owner and having other people's horses, you know, you have to put one of your own down. You have to keep going and, and walking into that barn the next day, hearing them nicker. That to me is always my reminder of why I'm doing it. I love hearing that even if they're telling me I'm late for breakfast. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think the biggest thing is never stop learning, learn from everybody you possibly can watch lessons, clinics, videos, everything. But don't be afraid to get out there and work for it. I'd love to do this again, because I think there's so much that we can cover and um, we're getting like a bunch of different amazing perspectives. So this is really valuable. I thank you guys so much for doing this. It was super helpful. And I think people will really relate to all of your answers. Um, like I said, there's a lot more that of course, this was like two hours. So thank you so much for your time too. Yeah, thank you for doing this because uh, I've been talking to my cows and sheep because I've moved oh so I have nobody up here. So <laughs> it's nice to like see people. <laughs> I'm kind of, I think everybody's in the same boat right now. Yeah, definitely. Okay, have a good night guys. Thank you so much. You too. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye.